For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me just say what a joy and privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I've served in the past with Pastor Spencer and Sam, and, and, and I love this couple. I, I love their love for Jesus. I love their love for the church. And uh, I, I'm just wonderfully blessed that I've been invited here to open God's Word for you this morning. Uh, we're in this incredible series in the book of Ephesians called Our Unsearchable Riches, and um, uh, again, I enter into this, into this series with uh, a, a particular uh, opportunity to open God's Word and to pick up where Pastor Spencer left off last week. So that's what we want to do this morning. Thank you, Naomi, for your sincere reading of the Word of God, and uh, appreciate very much. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in the North African country of Tunisia, and uh, it's a country that's 99% Muslim. And wherever you go in the country, and I found out very quickly that the presence of Islam was at everywhere you went. From the call to prayer five times a day, first of all, the one that woke you up out of a, uh, out of a night's sleep very early in the morning, to the presence of mosques everywhere. And, and I can honestly say from the moment I stepped off the plane, I felt a spiritual darkness that I had never, ever felt in my life before. And I was there visiting a, a long-term career missionary, and we were in the city of Karawan, the, the most, fourth most holy city in, in Islam. And as we were walking through the city with this overwhelming sense of darkness, I turned to Ken and I said, Ken, how can we pray for you? And without batting an eye, he looked back at me and he said, Greg, very simply, pray the prayers of Scripture. Pray the prayers of Scripture. And since that time, it's been my practice to turn to the different prayers of the Bible and pray them, whether it be for our missionaries or for our church or our leaders or family. This is a prayer. This morning, our passage is one of those prayers of Scripture. And it's not only something that we should pray for our missionaries, but for ourselves and our children and our families and our church and our leaders, 
It's a prayer of Scripture that God invites us to pray. I want to pray now just before we turn to the Word, so let me do that. Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning. Spirit of God, be our teacher as we walk through this precious passage in your Word that Christ might be exalted and lifted high. And we pray this for his glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you remember the context of this letter of the, to the Ephesians that Paul is sitting in prison in Rome. He's thinking about the church back in Ephesus, a church that he spent three years at. Uh, no doubt many of these believers in Ephesus were his spiritual children. And, and at, he had a report back to him in prison, and he's rejoicing in prison as he's thinking about the church in Ephesus. Now, I've spent many days in prison. My wife and I were involved in prison chaplaincy for, many, uh, for a number of years, and we were in a number of the prisons, in, in one of the federal prisons in, uh, in Ontario. And I can tell you that prison is not a place that, that, that inspires thanksgiving. But as Paul's sitting in prison, his heart is overwhelmed with gratitude as he thinks about the church. And he says this in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's heart is just overflowing with gratitude as he's thinking about the church in Ephesus. And his heart is overwhelmed with gratitude for two reasons that he says very specifically there. He says, first of all, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's our profession, right? That's our profession. We, we, we come to know Christ because we profess faith. We accept him as our Lord and Savior. We trust and we believe in him. And as Paul thought about these believers back in Ephesus, he said, these are genuine, authentic, true believers in Christ. And as he heard about this report that had come to him, he's giving thanks for this profession of reality in the lives of the church back in Ephesus. But the second thing he's giving thanks for is for their love toward all the saints. This is their practice, the outworking of that faith in the expression of their love towards one another in the church. And you know, as I was sitting there, as Pastor Spencer was thanking previous elders, and then to hear Naomi come up with a motion, I just sensed in that moment the incredible love that exists in this church for one another. And you know, you remember what Jesus said in the upper room about one of the distinguishing marks of the church? Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Do you remember why? If you have love one for another. And as Paul sitting in prison, not sure if he's going to live or die, he's thinking about the church of Jesus Christ. And because of their profession of faith and because of the practice of their love for one another, his heart is just overflowing with gratitude. 
In fact, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. It's like wave after wave after wave of gratitude as Paul thinks about the church. And you know, again, as I look at Church of the City, as I have the privilege of being here with you this morning, I sense two things, that this is a church where there's genuine profession of faith. People who love the Lord Jesus, but who express that in their love towards one another and towards the city of Guelph. This was a church that was doing well. It inspired gratitude in the heart of Paul. But I love as Paul goes on in his prayer, Paul's desire was for them to even have a deeper walk with God. To know Him more profoundly, more intimately, and to know the unsearchable riches of God. And you know, that should be our desire as well as we think about our own faith journey this morning. We should never be satisfied with what we've attained or where we are. But we should always long for more. And that really is the content of Paul's prayer as we move on to verse 17 and 18. After giving thanks, Paul goes on now to pray for the church in Ephesus. And this is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And if you're someone who underlines in your Bible, underline there the word wisdom, the word knowledge, and the eyes of your heart enlightened. This is a prayer that these Christians in Ephesus who were doing well, a prayer that they might know God that they would have wisdom and knowledge. What Paul's talking about here is more than just intellectual facts. It's more than just acquiring data and and sticking it in our brains. This is a knowledge that comes through time spent in the presence of God. This is an intimate understanding that comes from opening the Word and spending time devouring what God is saying to us. This is intimacy that comes by spending time with God in prayer. This is knowledge that leads to a deeper, more profound intimacy with the living God. In there, he uses that metaphor. He, he, he prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Well, our hearts don't really have eyes, do they? But in Scripture, the heart is the core and the center of our being. The heart is the center of our intellect and our emotions and our will. You remember Jesus said that even our words proceed from our hearts. 
And what Paul is praying for is, is, is not just that we get bigger heads by more knowledge. What Paul is praying for is that our hearts might be filled with a deeper intimacy of God that compels us forward to go and live for Jesus. And even though they were doing well, Paul is praying. I, I can just imagine him sitting there in prison. He's praying intently that this church might know and desire more of God, that they would go deeper in their faith, that they would know him better. You know, down through the years as a pastor, I've talked to people who are usually in two camps, one the knowers and one the doers. Those who say, you know, what's most important is what I know about God. And the others who say, well, it's more important how I live for God. And you know, the whole emphasis of this letter to the Ephesian church is that it's critical that we marry the two together. Our knowledge and our living because what we know very determinately affects how we live. In fact, I, I love this book of Ephesians, because it breaks down so beautifully into three chapters of doctrine and theology and what God wants us to know, and then three chapters on how to live that out practically in our lives. And again, Paul is praying here that we would know God in a more deeper, intimate way. You know, usually at a point like this, I stop and ask myself the question, how well do I know God? How well do you know God? J.I. Packer, in that classic book of his, Knowing God, he describes four ways about those who really know God. He says those who know God, really know God, have a great energy for God. Those who really know God have great thoughts of God. Those who really know God have a great boldness for God. And then fourth, he says, those who really know God have a great contentment in God. How does your heart line up with that this morning? It's a prayer that we would know God and know him more intimately. In fact, as Paul goes on in the prayer, he identifies three areas, three specific areas that he prays for these Christians that they would know God better. In verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He's praying for three things. He's praying that we would know the hope of our calling. Secondly, he's praying that we would know God better by knowing the riches of our glorious inheritance. And then thirdly, he's praying that we would know the greatness of God's power that is working in us. 
And really, the rest of the chapter goes on to describe what that power is. First of all, Paul is praying that we would know what is the hope to which we have been called. I love that we sang that that, that song this morning about hope. We've, as Christians, we've been called into hope. It's so beautiful. We've been called into hope. Not the hope of possibility. You know, as we're driving here this morning, I've never been to Church of the City, so, you know, you got your GPS, and I, and I was hoping it would lead me to the right place. That's hope with uncertainty, Okay. The New Testament hope knows nothing of uncertainty. There's no measure of doubt when it comes to the hope that Paul is talking about here. What hope is he talking about? He's talking about the hope of all things that are ours in Christ. He's praying that we would grasp the fullness of the symphony of blessings that Pastor Spencer spoke about last week in that one long sentence in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. He's praying that we just wouldn't have them as facts and intellectual, but that they would sift down to the very core of our being. That we would know the hope of being loved and adopted, that we belong to Jesus, that we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that He loves, that we would know that grace has been lavished on us and that all of our sins, (laughs) that's an amazing thought, that all of our sins have been forgiven by God. No matter what you did last night, or what you did last week, or what you did last month, all of our sins are forgiven by God. I've been meeting with a a young lady who's a new believer in Christ, and she's a single mom, and she's struggling with the past life that she lived and the choices that she's made. And when I was visiting with her, she was in tears talking about the shame that she was experiencing because of the things that she had been involved in in her past. And I said to her, well, here's what God says. God says that if you've confessed those sins, He has washed you And you are whiter than snow. She said, what? I said, that's the promise of God. That when he lavishes grace on you, that you are washed whiter than snow. And she just began to weep. She began to weep. It's a prayer that we would know the hope of our calling, that we are saved and marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that God loves us, and nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a prayer to grow deeper in this hope and of our calling and the blessings that are ours in Jesus. 
Secondly, he prays that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And you know, if God's call looks back to our beginning in Jesus, our inheritance looks ahead to what is still to come, right? To those blessings that are ours that are to be received in the future. You know, here's the wonderful truth that as children of God, as a son or daughter of God, we are heirs. And we are heirs not of earthly riches, but of eternal ones and heavenly ones. And Paul is praying that we would know the riches of a God who will never leave us regardless of the trials or sorrows or uncertainties that life still might hold for all of us. That we would know the riches of heaven that one day I will see Jesus face to face and I will be like him. That we will understand the riches of the new glorious body that we're going to receive without disease or infirmity or affected by sin where there will be no more tears or death or sin and everything will be made new. That we would know the riches that are still to come. But the third part of Paul's prayers is that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You might remember from the first week that Pastor Spencer mentioned one of the themes of Ephesians is power. And you're going to see it more. You're going to see it pop up again and again and again through this wonderful letter. And if God's call looks back to the beginning of our faith and the inheritance looks ahead to what is still to come, then God's power for us is for the present. And this is good news. The word power there in the Greek is the Greek word dunamis, which we get our English word dynamite from. It's the word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the same word that Jesus uses back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where he tells the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit who will come on you and empower you to go and live for Jesus, to be my witnesses. And I love what Paul says here. This isn't just power. This is immeasurably great power. This is power that cannot be quantified, can't be measured. It's like going down to the ocean with a bucket or a spoon and saying, let's see if I can kind of grasp the fullness of how much water's out there. Instead of kneeling down on the beach and picking up one sand grain at a time, saying, I'm going to count them all. Impossible. Immeasurable. It's power that is unlimited. Its purposes cannot be thwarted. It can't be contained. It is incomparable power in contrast to our limited and our weakness and our inability. It's power that surges through us in spite of ourselves. I was putting my little 18-month grandson to bed the other day, and he likes when you sing to him. Uh, I'm not going to sing for you. You'll be glad for that. But he likes when you sing to him. And I sing to him, Jesus loves me. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You know, as I was singing, just this overwhelming thought came over me. Not only is he weak, but so am I. In myself, in my flesh, in my ability to do anything for Jesus, I'm weak. But the immeasurable greatness of God's power works in all of us. And that's our hope. And notice here in this prayer, Paul doesn't ask for the power to be given to these believers, but that they might know the power of God already at work in them. You might remember Paul's last letter before he went and was executed. His letter to Timothy his young protege in the faith, his, the one that he was mentoring, he said, Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, do you remember, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is power that we don't maybe always recognize or see. It's power that... that is operating in fullness in all of us, but, but sometimes in, in, in a situation like this, what, what does that power look like? We don't necessarily see the power coming through our electrical cord that we plug in the wall until we turn something on that, that is connected to that power. And so Paul paints for us this visual, what is this power that is at work in us? And, and boy, this is something to get excited about Because if you're a Christian here this morning, this power is operating in you. Listen to what Paul says. First of all, in verse 20, it is a resurrection power. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Secondly, it's a power that seated Jesus at the right hand of God. And then down in verse 22, it's the power that put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Let's think about those just for a minute. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's resurrection power. The very same power that took a corpse, and just visualize for me for a corpse that had been for three days lying in a tomb. All activity, nerve systems, internal systems, muscular systems, everything stopped for three days. And along comes this power. Paul says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And all of a sudden, after three days, that that body is not only alive, but it's functioning and it's healed from all of the abuse of crucifixion and the floggings. And Jesus, Jesus is found walking and living among his own again. It's power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
You know, as a pastor, I've been in probably most of the ERs and ICUs in, in this region. I've seen doctors performing life-saving measures right in front of me. But, you know, I've never heard of a doctor with the power to bring life back to a corpse that's been dead for three days. This is divine power. This is the power of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you only have to look in the mirror and see the person looking back at you to realize this power. It's the power that brought you from spiritual death to life in Jesus. You're going to see more about that in chapters 2 or 3, so I won't go into it any more than that. But let me just say, when we're tempted to doubt what's working in us, when we're tempted to doubt that power, let's remember it's the power that emptied the tomb that is working in us. Secondly, it's not only resurrection power, it's enthronement power. It's power that seated Jesus at the right hand of God. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. It's the power that lifted Jesus out of the grave then seated him at the right hand of God, the symbolic place of the highest honor and authority in the universe. And again, I love what Paul says. Not just above these things, but Paul says, far above. Far above. Not just the next rung on the ladder, but so far above the ladder itself. Above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Over every nation. Over Rome, where this church of Ephesus was being persecuted and suffering. Over North Korea, over Russia, over the United States, over China, over every political leader, over every dictator that's ever held power in history, over educators, over financiers, over the judicial system, above the laws of medicine and physics, far above any power in this world, angelic, demonic, or anything, or anyone that wants lordship in our lives. That's, that's the sense when Paul says, above every dominion, above anything that wants to claim lordship in our lives. Jesus is seated. Above every name that is named, every hero, every self-proclaimed Messiah, or every demigod or idol, and Ephesus was filled with idols, you'll remember. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus doesn't just sit at the right hand of God to rest. He sits at the right hand of God to rule. I was in court recently, and, you know, if you've ever been in court, when the judge enters, someone says the right honorable proceeding, everybody's got to stand. And the judge ascends up to the judge's bench. And when the judge sits, he sits to rule. And his rule stands. 
All things have been put under the feet of Jesus. This is such a, a, a powerful declaration of his authority. All things have been put under his feet, including Satan, our greatest enemy, who wars against God and against mankind and against the church and against everything that God is trying to build up and establish for his glory, who wars against family and marriage and morality and truth in society, Jesus stands literally with his foot on the neck of Satan, proclaiming one word, defeated. All things have been put under the feet of Jesus. Friends, there's only one Lord. <laughs> there's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. We will continue to experience hardship and suffering, sickness, the loss of loved ones. We'll go through trials and difficulties until we get to heaven. But the more we know Jesus, the more we know Jesus, we won't live in fear, defeated, or in despair, or in doubt. But as J.I. Packer says, with great energy and boldness and contentment in God. I've been a Christian for over 40 years and I've concluded that there's a lot more of Jesus that I need to know. But not only resurrection and enthronement power, but verse 22, and we'll finish with this, exaltation power. Power by which Jesus is made head over the church, his body. The fullness of Jesus, which is the fullness of God in him, now fills the church. This is so exciting. That's true of Church of the City this morning. Christ fills this church. Not necessarily the building. Christ fills his church, his body, you. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ fills our gatherings. I, I hope you sense that this morning as we began in worship. Christ fills our worship and our preaching and our teaching and our fellowship and how we love each other. Christ fills our missional communities and our marriages and our families and our lives. And if the fullness of Christ fills the church, which it does, then the power of God is surging through his people, surging through his church to accomplish his kingdom purposes. I don't care what we have to face out there. It fills us to proclaim the gospel, to be unashamed in telling people about Jesus. That power fills us to do good works that point people to the Savior. It's power to help us see lives radically transformed by Jesus. Power to heal the broken lives of people. For those in addictions to be set free. For marriages to be restored from the ashes. From those who are in bondage to be walking in freedom. 
It's power that fills the church. And when you get to chapter 3, you're going to see this is power that is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask for or imagine. I fear sometimes that in the church we are limiting God. We're limiting God by our lack of understanding of these incredible riches and blessings that are ours in Jesus. And I believe that's why Paul's praying for the church. That we would know him better. Which would translate into lives that would go and live unashamedly and boldly to the glory of God. This is a prayer that we can and we should pray. In fact, I would like to pray it over you this morning, if I can. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for Church of the City. Thank you that they our church that demonstrates faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards one another and love for the city of Guelph. And I thank you, Lord, for this community of believers who truly love the Lord Jesus. But I pray, Father, that you might give them wisdom and knowledge and open the eyes of their hearts that they might know the hope to which they've been called the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of the power of Christ that is working in them, that they might go forth and bring blessing and hope to the city of Guelph and beyond. Thank you, Father, for this church. I pray your blessing over them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Nick and Naomi are going to be at the front here if anyone would like to come forward for prayer.